0: Pray with me, friends. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know that line comes from the Psalms, right? So much in this service is from scripture. Well, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about um, this passage in Jesus' teaching. We're in Luke 6. I didn't give the scripture reference, but it's probably there in your bulletin. I'm sure it is. Uh, in the middle of, uh, we're kind of in the middle part of the gospel, Jesus' teaching, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, because, well, you may have heard in the part that I read in the preface that Jesus comes down to a level place. You, you may have been, if you are a Bible reader, you've been around the churches for a while, you may have heard the, 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 the phrase, the Sermon on the Mount, comes from Matthew's Gospel where Jesus goes up on a tall mountain and he calls his disciples to them and he sits down and he begins to teach them from the mountain. And he says things that are actually quite similar to what we hear here. He starts off, blessed are the poor. He says, poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger. He actually says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But you can tell the parallels, right? It's something of the same body of teaching. But here Jesus comes down to a level place equal footing as it were with his disciples and those who have come to hear him and he wants to teach. I mentioned it just to sort of frame what we're going to look at. Uh, one of the lessons of gospel scholarship is that it's a difficult thing to account for the differences among the gospels. I don't know why it is. It's not how I would have written the Bible. Nobody ever asked me how the Bible should be written. But if I were writing the Bible it would be sometimes maybe just one account of Jesus's life rather than two that had slightly different details, slightly different words and uh, but in the wisdom of God he's given us a multiplicity of angles and perspectives which I think include both a reliable and trustworthy account of who Jesus is and what he teaches but also an artistic framing of things. It's not accidental as you're going to see in a second that Jesus is speaking on level footing with people. So anyway I want to invite us to uh, consider that the arrangement in all of this reveals some art. An art at its best, is always trying to get at what is beautiful and true. There's an early Christian writing called the Didache. I doubt many of you have read it. It was probably written about 100 years after the Gospel, and it starts off like uh, the Gospel of Luke and most of the New Testament. And it starts off like this. There are two ways, a way of life and a way of death. And the difference between these ways is very great. And then it goes on to lay out what those are, and what the difference is between them. It's actually quite interesting um, piece of early Christian writing. I'm not going to say much else about it, except it lays this out right at the beginning. And it's interesting because it picks up a strain of thought that is present, we, we read it in this our psalm reading and also in the reading from Jeremiah. Blessed is the man, blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, That person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't wither. Even in the desert, even in the land of droughts, it has its roots connected to what is true. It is a way of life. The wicked are not so. They're not going to stand in the judgment. They will perish. They'll be in a dry and thirsty land like Chris read for us. There's two ways. There's a way of righteousness. And there's a way... Of wickedness. One is a way of life and one is a way of death. It's a biblical way of thinking. It may be problematic for you and how you feel about it as you hear it. It's there for us though, so let's talk about it. It shows up, I think, in the way that Luke has presented Jesus' teaching here. There are blessings and there are woes. There's a ton of two categories here those who receive the blessing of God and those who are given a warning. Just a couple observations for you. The contrast between these two groups is socioeconomic, or so it appears. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who weep. Isn't Luke hasn't spiritualized this, saying Jesus doesn't in this passage present this as blessed are those who are humble although that's probably present blessed are you who are poor yours is the kingdom of heaven you who are hungry you will be filled woe to you who are rich woe to you who have received your fill you who live lives of laughter now ignoring the suffering in the world you will one day mourn mourn this is poetry, and so it's easy to misinterpret. It's easy to want to figure out, what is, Luke, what is Jesus saying here exactly? Is it a valoration of poverty? Is this some kind of romanticization? That's a hard word to say. Work it out for yourself. You know what I'm trying to say. Is, is Jesus romanticizing those who are poor? Oh, gosh, look how oh, they're just, they're just salt-of-the-earth people, you know? I don't think so. I think he's taking for granted that the world is a broken place. And he's offering words of hope to his disciples. He's, he's looking at his disciples, if you notice that detail in the text. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, I see you, and I'm promising some comfort. But he also looks at his disciples and he sees those who are rich. He sees those who are comfortable. And his word to them is a warning. It reminds me of uh, about ten later chapters later in the gospel... The parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus is the poor man who sits at the gate and is destitute. Sits at the gate of the rich man. Rich man dines sumptuously every day. Luke kind of paints this picture for us, Jesus does here in Luke. Lazarus has sores and is, they're licked by the dogs. It's a strong contrast. They both die. And there's consolation for Lazarus and suffering for the rich man. Sort of a parabolic... Working out of what Jesus is saying here. The point seems to be that there's a way of life that you ought not to follow, that of the rich man. And there are ways of life that might be inevitable right now, those of poverty, which will one day have some consolation to them. But the other contrast that's here one contrast is socioeconomic, the other contrast is this is a little bit too big of a word to use on a Sunday morning, Christological, has to do with Jesus. Blessed are you when people revile you and exclude you and hate you and call your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. On account of me. This is Jesus' circumlocution for himself, conjuring up the image of the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. But Jesus goes around speaking of himself as the Son of Man on account of me. It's not exactly, you know, if I said that to you, blessed are you, Jessica. If people revile you because of me, David. You know, that's like a really arrogant thing to say. There's quite a strong claim here, Jesus is saying, that there's something about me that is going to make it worth it for you to suffer intensely, socially, to be excluded, to be on the outs. I think it's a remarkable and totalizing claim and really unfair and crazy if it's not warranted. There's consolation there. This is what their fathers did to the prophets. Implicitly, Jesus is saying, I'm standing in the line of the prophets. And gathering with me looks like gathering with the prophets. Of course, to do the opposite is to gather with those who persecute the prophets, or gather with the false prophets. There's a kind of genealogy of the people of God. There are false prophets and there are true prophets. And this is all within, this is inter- really interesting to me, maybe you don't care, maybe you're just like, get this the sermon, get over um, This is all within the people of God, the people of Israel. Here comes Jesus, within the people of Israel, speaking to the people of Israel, his own people, saying, here's the story of who we are, false prophets and true prophets. <laughs> And the difference between these has been very great. I think, and he's speaking to his disciples and saying, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who everybody speaks well of you. And yet you haven't really associated rightly with me. I think this is actually quite realistic image of what it's like to be in a religious community, to be in the people of God. It's a mixed bag, isn't it? You don't need me to tell you that there are plenty of churches and plenty of, real, of experiences in churches that are just not all that beautiful, winsome, or true to the teaching of Jesus. God help us. We're, no, we're not above that kind of, of Jesus' critique. So, the contrast is socioeconomic. The contrast is all about Jesus. And there is an inversion that's promised, isn't there? Things are going to change one day. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's actually a statement about things right now. But all the other beatitudes, the blessings, are have something in the future. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. The verbs become future tense. There is a future hope. Blessed are, woe to you who are full now. Because what's happening now is not the fullness of what's going to happen. In the future, you will be hungry. Ricky read for us 1 Corinthians where Paul is giving something of this like cosmic vision of world history. The first Adam has come and the world has been broken. The second Adam has come in Christ. He himself. And the world in his death and resurrection something has happened which is like the down payment of a future thing that's going to happen, the resurrection of the entire world and the defeating of death and the rectifying of all that is wrong in your life and in mine and in our community. But it's not all done yet. But there is a future hope. This is a point where it's a little bit tricky. We could Narrate what it is to be a Christian as that all of our hope is up in the future, right? You know, that sort of pie in the sky when you die, sitting on a harp. Gosh, your life stinks right now, but one day heaven will be great. It's not much consolation really for right now. I don't think that's the image that Jesus wants us to get. Because he says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of God, he says. Now, Somehow now there is a real possession of that future hope that isn't yet fully revealed. Jesus says elsewhere in Luke, the kingdom of God is actually within you, among you, here in your midst now. But it's here in a form in which you can't quite see it unless you have eyes opened to see it. One of the reasons that we take communion every Sunday is because we are awaiting that great feast in heaven when there will be no more hunger when we will not be separated from one another by awkward and strange and terrible divisions, but we'll be around one table. We will be there and see the Lord face to face, not at a distance, not through a dark glass darkly, as we do now. And this is a foretaste, brothers and sisters, of the real reality. When you receive his body and blood, you are receiving him really and truly. You're not just checking a box and saying, ah, yeah, I remember, that's the real thing. No, he's here now. When you love one another, brothers and sisters, you are making manifest the real love of God. It's already here now, even though it's still not yet to come. Okay, so anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is that there's, I think, really and truly two ways. There is a way of life. And there is a way of death. There is a way of righteousness. There is a way of wickedness. And this is how the gospel, this is how Jesus is teaching us to think. But I think there might be a problem. I don't know if you feel this. I feel this sometimes. You ever heard this phrase? There's two types of people in the world. And then we go to reduce the whole complexity of humanity into two simple categories, right? And some, often this is like trivial and it'll be on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. There's two types of people in the world, those who divide people into two categories of people and those who do not. And I think we've learned that there's real danger in doing that, isn't there? I mean, just imagine, like you're, just like imagine you're in a faraway country that was deeply divided politically. It's really easy. Just you imagine you're there. And you can, you can say, well, you know, there's two types of people in the world. There's people who are part of our party who think rightly. And then there's those fools over there, or those, even worse, like wicked people who don't care about the things that I value. It's a neat way of dividing the world up, isn't it? It works for a while, and if, especially if you can get all the people around you, you can build a community that agrees with you. You can kind of organize your life that way. You can organize the world for yourself. It's dangerous. It has the potential to do harm, doesn't it? Because once you put people on the outside, you can stigmatize them. You can justify what you do to them. As soon as they become other, you're in a position where it's much easier to discount them, especially to not listen to them, but even to do harm. Regina Schwartz wrote a book in the late 90s, a scholar of ancient religion called Curse of Cain, the violent legacy of monotheism. And she says in there this, every act of identity formation is itself an act of violence. I think she's getting at something like this. When we begin to identify who we are with a coherent way of being, when we begin to say there are two ways, the way of righteousness and life, that me and my community, our church, the Christian world, fill in the blank, are part of those on the outside we begin, our, our, our other, we put ourselves in a place, she says, to begin to do violence. And the idea there is that this is inherently the case. It's a deep challenge to dualistic thinking. And I think it represents a little bit of a challenge for the scriptures we read today. So let me read to you, I'm almost done, don't worry. Um, just a little bit more from that gospel passage to remind you what Jesus says after he creates this image of those who are blessed and those to whom he gives a strong warning. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. To the one who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also, you've heard this phrase, turn the other cheek. Some of you are just like the light bulbs coming on and you're realizing that this is from Jesus' teaching right here. Love your enemies, do good. Lend to them expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So in the, here, here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to get at. There is an apocalyptic dualism here. There, are, there is a way of life and a way of death. But to be on the way of life does not amount to license to put others in a category where you can mit, treat, mistreat them and harm them. Instead, these are the hardest words to follow, to love your enemies, to do good to them, to give away your, your money freely, to receive harm, physical harm without inflicting retaliation. The whole tradition of nonviolent resistance arguably takes its beginning here. There's a resistance in the text to the idea that dualistic thinking that finds its way somehow in Christian theology need to result in violence. But There's also an offer. There's an offer to experience your life as one of the sons and daughters of the Most High. And it's a way of life, isn't it? It's not here a credo. We're going we're to confess our creed in a minute. It's a way of life. I think it's still as winsome today as it was when Jesus began to embody it and taught it. If you drive south on 13 in Ithaca and you're stopped, I forget at what street it is, I think it's state, you'll see painted on one of the, you know, one of the graffiti uh, things, painted somewhere, it says, give without expectation. Someone's longing caused them to write that on a place publicly in our town. I think that's exactly what Jesus has said here. Give without expecting anything in return. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced someone's actual real generosity that didn't have something on the hook for it? It's otherworldly. It's the kind of thing that brings real blessing. And it's the kind of love that when given is in itself a gift to the giver. It is a blessed thing to give that sort of love. So brothers and sisters, we're called to this. We're called to this way of life. And that's what I got for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.